Just before we go into the message this morning, again, want to welcome you all. It's so good to see those of you who are in person and those of you who are online. If you're online, uh, reminder, feel free to uh, say hi to your hosts, Carrie and Ashley, this morning. If you're online, I also think you should say happy birthday to Monique Workington because it's her birthday today, and I think that would embarrass her. So there's a little happy birthday going on here for you, Monique, just so you know. Uh, we also want to make sure that you guys know, as you've maybe heard, as we're going to be continuing our series, Soul Care, this week. Um, and the first couple of weeks, you heard this repeatedly. This is a series, as we're going through this as a church, you can't do this alone. You need to do this in community. Now, I know a lot of our groups, our small groups, ended up filling up really fast. Um, and some of you weren't able to get into a small group. We have a new small group that we're starting this week on Thursday nights at 7.30 p.m. It's going to be an online group meeting over Zoom. I'm going to be hosting that one. Uh, there are spots available. So if you would like to be involved in a small group, through Soul Care, you can go online, uh, go to eaglemontchurch.ca, uh, get the Get Connected banner. It'll scroll down and you can pick small groups. And on the small group page, scroll to the bottom and you can see how you can register. Click there to register for a small group. Uh, we would love to have you participate in that with us. Uh, from the year 1994, well, maybe 1993, to roughly around 1998, I, Joel Deardall, had the same New Year's resolution every year. It was an important one, one that actually was core to who I thought I needed to be. That resolution was to be six foot three. Fast forward to the year 2021, and church, I'm going to be honest, I'm starting to have my doubts that that resolution is going to come true. Now, I'm never going to be six foot three, and a lot of that has to do with my genetics. I am a deer doll. I am actually the tallest on my dad's side of the family amongst the cousins and the uncles. I am the tallest. Let that sink in. I was never going to be that tall. There's a reason why I have the hair color I do, the eye color I do, the skin tone that I do. You don't get this pasty white by accident. It has to do with genetics, right? All of us have that passed on. Who you are, what you look like, has to do with your relatives that came before you. Now, we can pass on other things, too. For example, my wife, Carrie, believes I have a superpower. That superpower is, is I can walk in anywhere, and if there is a bargain to be found, I will find it. I got that from my father. That's not genetics, but it's something that just came through. Think of you and your family. There's probably certain sayings that you do. Or there's ways you brush your teeth or scoop up your soup or different mannerisms that you pick up from your family of origin, right? Some of that's genetic. Some of that's just what we end up adopting. Now, here's my question for you today. What about the topic of sin? See, many of us tend to view the impact of sin through the lens of a very individualistic mindset. We're only really impacted and held accountable for our own personal sin. And really, our choices to sin really only affect ourselves. Well, the Bible actually teaches that sin can affect not just the individual who commits it, but also preceding generations. Think of Adam and Eve at the very beginning of the Bible. We are still paying the consequences of their sin. The books of Deuteronomy, Exodus, and Numbers all talk about both blessings, but also cursings. That's a weird word, eh? 
And it says that the effects and consequences of sin are not contained to the individual, but passed on to the next generation. Exodus 34, 7 says this, that God, he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This is repeated in Deuteronomy 5, 9, Exodus 25, and Numbers 14, 18. Today in week three of our series, Soul Care, we're going to be talking about the topic of family sin patterns. Now, family sin patterns refer to weaknesses or tendencies that are handed down to us through our preceding generations, from parents or other extended members of our family. These sins can involve behavioral patterns and ways of thinking that keep us trapped in these patterns. So, for example, those who are offspring of alcoholics tend to actually be, have a physical predisposition to alcoholism themselves. Let's first turn to the Bible for some examples of this. If you've read through the chapter this week for soul care, I'm going to be pulling out some of the stuff Dr. Reimer mentions here. Two great examples. The first is David. Now, if you've gone to church for a while, you've probably heard of David. He was a great king in Israel. But David also made some mistakes. Chiefly among them was David committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. As he became king and later in his life, we also see that David chose to have many wives and concubines. Let's look to his children and see how that affected his family. David's son, Ammon, we see actually rapes another daughter of David, Tamar. His son, Absalom, rebels against his father, sleeps with his father's concubines then for all in public to see. His other son, Solomon, who eventually became king after him, who was a wise man, but his major downfall was Solomon married many foreign women who ended up leaving his heart astray from God. There was a, a pattern of sexual immorality in David's family line. Let's take another Old Testament character in Abraham. Now, Abraham had a couple different patterns of sin that ended up coming through his family. The first was lying. Abraham struggled himself with lying. In Genesis chapter 12, we see that Abraham lied about his wife, his wife and said that she was his sister. Because as he went to Egypt, he was afraid because he thought she was so beautiful, someone would kill him and take her to be his, their own bride. So he lied about this. Then we see uh, Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac repeats not just a pattern of a lie, but literally the same lie. Like, it's kind of ridiculous. Who lies about saying, my wife's my sister? But Isaac does the exact same lie about his wife, Rebecca, afraid that he, he would also be killed and his wife would be taken. By the time we move to the next generation, we, we see Isaac's son, Jacob. Jacob, this, this sin of lying had become so poignant in this family line that by the time Jacob comes around, his nickname is literally the deceiver. He lies and deceives his father to steal his older brother's birthright. Abraham had another family sin pattern in his family line, and that was favoritism. Abraham had a favorite child. His name was Isaac, and he was born through his mother, Abraham's wife, Sarah. But why, when Isaac was born, Abraham had another son named Ishmael, who was born to another woman named Hagar. And when Isaac was born, Ishmael and Hagar were tossed to the turb because Isaac was the favored. Through the next generation, we see Isaac marries Rebekah, and they have two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the favorite 
of his father Jacob. And Rebekah, her favorite, is Isaac. And this causes a major issue and rift in the family and a lot of dysfunction and destruction. Eventually, Jacob, with the help of his mother, deceives his father Isaac and steals his brother's birthright. Then we move to the next generation and we follow Jacob. Now, Jacob, you would think a man who was so upset about not being his father's favorite wouldn't repeat the same, but he does. He has 12 sons. And out of those 12 sons, Jacob has his own favorite, Joseph. You may be familiar with him. He has his own Broadway show and had a very colorful robe. Now this again, in Genesis chapter 37, if you want to refer to it later, read verse 3 and 4. He was Jacob's favorite, and with that, you can imagine for the other brothers, there was immense jealousy. The brothers eventually threw him in a pit and then sold him off to Egypt as a slave. Favoritism had devastating consequences for this entire family. Science, and specifically the study of epigenetic modification, has now proven the truth of the Bible. And that the effect of sin is not just contained within ourselves, but is passed on to future generations. We have a three-minute video clip, if we could play that in the back. What science has now learned, and is so fascinating, is that the choices we make in life will alter how our genes are expressed. This is big. People need to really pay, sit up and pay attention to this. Because science is now confirming scripture. In lectures that I do, I often ask the audience, which is more scientifically accurate, the Bible or Charles Darwin? Well, guess what? It's the Bible. Darwin hypothesized that it was mutation over millions of years that caused his finches to have different beaks. Science has actually now proved it's epigenetic modification. Epigenetics, the, the instructions sitting above the genome, telling the genes how to express themselves, which are changed based on experience. What we go through in life, the foods that we eat, the choices we make, uh, the environment in which we live will actually alter the genes in, in telling which genes to turn on and which genes to turn off. What we know about genetics and addiction is that behaviors, sensations, input into the brain will use the DNA to change how the cell responds. And basically what happens is that genes are turned off or turned on based on what that response is. While the DNA doesn't change, the expression does. So the ability to be aware of environment, ability to respond may be genetically coded, but when we begin changing it, the term we use is epigenetically, when we change how that's expressed, we change the enzymes that are made, we change the response of the cell, and that change becomes a part of the genetic expression. When we have kids, we not only give the sequence to our kids, we will pass along the instructions two and three generations down. And so if we become addicted to stuff, we can pass along to our kids gene constellations that make them more vulnerable to addictions. Conversely, if we get victories over stuff, we can actually pass on advantages. There's good animal evidence that that change in expression can be transmitted to the offspring. Those enzymes, those mechanisms, those genes that are turned off may also be turned off in the next generation. 
so we can pass along both positive things in our life and or negative depending on the choices we make in life. And so the Bible is actually more scientifically accurate than Charles Darwin because we do pass down to our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren the experiences that we go through in life based on the epigenetic modifications. They will get not only our genes, but the instructions on how those genes are expressed. Many adolescents will say things like, hey, it's my body, I can do what I want. Only if you're never going to have kids. If you're going to have kids, it's not only your body, it's your kids, your grandkids, and your great-grandkids' body, too. So be careful what you do. We have the ability to pass on both the blessings of God and the curses of sin to the next generation after us. Bitterness, anger, pride, rejection, unforgiveness, fear, doubt, worry, abuse, jealousy, drunkenness, adultery, lust, greed, rebellion... These sins will plague and rob the generations to come after you. These sin patterns are often tied to identity lies. If you go back to week one of this series, that pass on, those lies themselves can pass on from generation to generation. Now, before we get too depressed this morning, it's important to note your family having a sinful pattern in its past does not mean that it is simply your destiny to be stuck in that pattern. This is not fatalistic. Christ, as Scripture has to- spoken about, has broken the curse of sin and death. As Jesus himself said in John, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. But we need to bring some of these sins hiding in the shadows of the past to light in order to really break free and have freedom from them. The purpose of exploring sin patterns is not to dig up the past and blame others for our issues. That will get you nowhere. But we need to become aware of these patterns in our families because some of the sins that you and I struggle with find their roots in generational sin patterns. And each passing generation, it has become more and more ingrained and the roots deeper and deeper. That is why it's so difficult to break. In order to truly experience freedom in our souls, as we're looking at having health in our soul, we need to honestly explore, address, and then break out of our family sin patterns. In the book of Joshua, there's a story of the Israelites as they are following God, and God called them to have a war with another neighboring community. And as they defeated them, his instructions were, do not keep anything from them. Don't take their treasures, don't take their gold, their silver, their precious metals, don't take their livestock, leave it all. Now there was a man in in the Israelite camp named Achan, and he chose to keep some valuables and hide in his tent. Because of that, Israel was under a curse. They suddenly no longer had the favor of God, and they were being punished for it. And they had to figure out what was going on. They eventually had to figure out where was their sin in the camp so they could eliminate it and again be released from that curse and experience the blessing and favor of God. We need to become aware of sin in our camps. We need to know the enemy we are facing in order to be able to gear up and face against it. Jesus said these words in Luke 14, 31. Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000 men? We need to first recognize what are we facing. Some of you have had a really individualistic perspective of sin that you struggle with. And you need to recognize perhaps there are deep roots that you need to pray into and break. 
Now, the idea of exploring our family's past might bring fear to some of us. Some of you this morning have been holding on to dark secrets in your family. And those secrets have kept you imprisoned. Some of you are aware of rape within your family lines. You're aware of murder. You're aware of alcoholism, of theft, of sins that bring shame upon both yourself and people within your family. Some of you might struggle not wanting to look at your history. You know there are things that might dishonor other relatives, so you don't want to talk about it. I want to say this morning, the words Dr. Reimer says in his own book that we're studying through, the most dishonoring thing you can do to your family is to allow secret, destructive sin patterns to continue to persist and affect future generations. The most honoring thing you can do is break that chain. So how do you break family sin patterns? First of all, we need to start with the fact that you can't break it on your own. The reality is, is we often repeat the family sin pattern that has been presented to us and has been modeled to us, even though we don't want to. Victims of abuse have a high probability of themselves becoming abusers. It is not because they want to, and it's not because they in any way enjoyed the abuse. Some of you, out of deep hurt and rejection, of what you've experienced in your family of origin, have rebelled against that. You've rebelled against what you've seen. And you've said, you know what? I'm going to be the opposite of them. I am never going to be like dad. I will never drink like he did. I'm never going to yell like mom. I'm never going to throw things and belittle my kids. I'm never going to act like her. Some of you have been able to actually change a particular behavior. But here's the issue. You may be able to stop a specific action. You maybe will be able to choose to drink, not to drink. You maybe be able to choose not to yell and not to throw. But your rebellion against what you've seen doesn't actually heal what's broken inside of you. Dr. Rob Reimer says this, in a spiritual kingdom, there can be no victory through rebellion, but only in submission to the king. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom that can only be advanced in submission to the king, not rebellion. Rebellion only leads to different forms of bondage. So perhaps maybe you've committed that you would never be an alcoholic like your parent, and your rebellion, true to form, does help you stay away from that but you have other compulsive or addictive behaviors, whether it's gambling, workaholism, pornography addiction. You need more than simply an alteration in your behavior. You need to break free from your family's pattern. You need to step forward into true healing. And that can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. So there are six things as Dr. Reimer points in his book that we're going to quickly review this morning, of, that you can do six steps to move into breaking a family sin pattern. The first is this. Admit the pattern. Fully admit to the sinful behavior in your family and its effect on you. 
Don't defend it and don't minimize it. Ignoring sin in our lives and families keeps us from finding freedom, and it enables our family members to remain in their sin as well. So you must begin by admitting it. You have to be ruthlessly honest with yourself to find freedom. Now again, this is not about blaming, and it's not about putting our issues onto other people as if they're responsible. But you have to be honest about what's there. Perhaps what would be helpful for you to is do an exercise called making a genogram. Me and my wife did this the first year we were married because I was in the midst of doing my master's degree in counseling. And I had to do some work on genograms, and we did our family of origins. If you're married, this is a wonderful exercise for you to do together. You'll see it on the PDF form this week for the questions that you're going to do in small groups. And it's uh, where there's some lines, and it's essentially a family tree. And it's, it's really plotting out your family of origin and finding some patterns. What are the marriage relationships like in your family? Perhaps that's a blessing. Perhaps that's a curse. Are there addiction issues? Are there mental health struggles? Are there sin issues that lay in your family that you can see and you can plot out to begin to look and go, what's going on in my family of origin? Perhaps there's a pattern there. You need to come to grips of recognizing your family sin pattern. Admit it. And then number two, don't compromise. You have to create a zero-tolerance policy for the difficult areas of your life. There may be some things that others can do that you can't because of your family tree, because of the roots of sin that lie in your family. So, for example, some of you in your family lines, you are prone to alcoholism. You see it within your relatives of extended family. For some of you, that means you need to have an absolute zero policy with that. Where other people might have liberty and freedom, you don't. Because you know that you have an easy attachment to that. Perhaps maybe you have an issue with gossip and you see that in your family line. You need to stay away from certain areas where you know that gets you sucked in. You need to not go to those chat calls. 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14 the Apostle Paul addresses an issue that was causing division in the church. The issue was this. There was meats that were often sacrificed before idols of different temples and different gods. When the sacrifices were done, those meats were sold for cheap in the marketplace. And you can imagine, for those who were in the church who didn't have many means, that was a way of saving money and being able to feed their family. Now, some people felt complete liberty and felt fine with eating those meats. They didn't feel guilty at all, and they felt that they were free. And Paul agreed that they were permissible to be able to do that. But there were others that their conscience said, no, this was offered to a foreign god. This is wrong. And Paul said, if your conscience tells you and, and irks you in that, it would be sin for you to eat of that meat sacrifice to that idol. The point from this is that there are some things that are going to be fine and permissible for others that won't be for you. You have to recognize what you are prone to, what God, as you just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you, might be saying, I need you to move this away because it's too much of a temptation for you. This is a stumbling block for you. Now, church, Paul also, just as a side note, challenges the church that even if you have liberty to do something, but your brother or sister does not, that you should not partake if that means it's going to make someone else to stumble. So using alcohol as an example again, if you know someone else can't drink, don't invite them over to your house and put a drink on the table. Don't ask them to meet you at a bar. 
But rather, Christian liberty is not about trying to attain as much as we can for ourselves. Christian liberty is the ability to sacrifice ourselves in order to serve those who are beside us. Liberty is a big word in our culture today, and we need to have a true definition of what Christian liberty actually is. I want you to, in your mind, have this picture. Maybe you want to close your eyes if you're a visual person. And imagine having this beautiful home and a beautiful green yard in the front, just perfect for kids to play in. Big, spacious. They can run around with balls kicking around and hula hoops and trucks and all kinds of things as they're just playing in the front yard. Now, right outside at the edge, right at the edge of the grass of that front yard, there's a busy highway with vehicles zooming back and forth. Now, as a parent, that yard is beautiful. It's perfect. It's a great space for your kids just to feel free to play in. But as a parent, you also recognize that they could easily get in trouble by stepping over the grass. There's constantly people who are walking by who could easily come in and take things from the yard, including your child. Would you feel safe in leaving your child by yourself there? Now, imagine the same yard, and you put up a white fence all the way around that white fence is restrictive to that child. They're no longer able to get outside of the yard. But in that, while it may seem restrictive, it also actually brings freedom to the child. And it brings freedom to the parent. They're no longer worried about them running out on the street. They're not worried about someone coming in and grabbing anything. That's the equivalent of some of the fences, the boundaries that we need to put into our lives. Do you need to put up some fences in your life that will actually give you more freedom to live? Where do you have vulnerabilities and family sin patterns that need, to, that need more protective measures? What no-compromise policies do you need to put up in your life? Is it no consumption of alcohol? Is it no private computer where no one else can see? Or is it putting up protective software on all your electronics for accountability? Are you putting up set hours for your work because you know you have a tendency for workaholism? Is it not going past that spot or talking to those people that you know always just suck you in with gossip? We need to have a no compromise. Number three, we need to get help. So often sin is tied to the aspects of shame and secrecy. And because of this, people are often reluctant to ask for help. But these patterns, again, are deeply ingrained, and you may not realize how deep the roots are in you, actually in your DNA for you to be predisposed. You need all the help you can get. So you need to share. Share with someone. Share with your spouse, for those of you who are married. If you're not married, don't share with your spouse because they don't exist. But if you're married, share with your spouse. They probably already know. Share with a close friend or someone in your small group right now. Share with a pastor or a counselor or a spiritual leader who can pray and help walk with you. Find someone to help and give you ongoing accountability. Start with someone, with one, just one. Church, I ask if you're online or in person, just for a moment here, just close your eyes. Holy Spirit, I pray right now, bring to our mind and put the face of someone in our lives right now that we can share with. 
Whoever that person is that came to your mind, write that name down. Don't ignore that. Write their name down right now. You need to get help. You need someone. You need support. Number four, deal severely with your sin patterns. Matthew 5, 27 to 30, Jesus tells his listeners that if a part of your body causes you to sin, you should cut it off. And being without that body, part of your body is better than allowing sin to remain and cause you to be overtaken by sin. Now, Jesus' words here aren't to be taken literally. You do not need to grab a machete to cut off part of your body right now. But it's a powerful illustration, and it's clear. You need to radically move to eliminate potential for sin that exists in your life. Don't treat it casually. If there are people or situations in your life that cause you to sin, you need to eliminate them. You need to pull them out. Fifthly, we need to practice spiritual disciplines. Practicing spiritual disciplines can help counteract your family sin pattern. I love a couple of the examples that Dr. Reimer gave, and I'm just going to use them myself. Uh, uh, um, spiritual disciplines that can really help us in this. If you struggle with addictive behavior, whether that's food, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, addictions are always rooted in shame. And because addictions are focused on self-gratification, then look at practicing a spiritual discipline that focuses on self-denial to counteract that behavior. Something like fasting or participating in deeds done in secret. Because all acts of self-denial help, uh, help break the pattern of self-gratification. Or if you're someone who struggles with codependency, people-pleasing, fear, look at the spiritual discipline of silence and solitude. Take time to listen to God, to hear his voice, to actually seek out and hear his approval. Because having his approval, again, having his confirmation of your identity going back to week one will help break you from the need of other people's approval. Learning to hear God will take away the anxiety of your soul. Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline is a real go-to when it comes to spiritual disciplines if you want to read more on that. Or I know any of us pastors would love to talk with you about it. Finally, number six this morning is meditate on scripture. Scripture specifically that focus on the virtues you want to grow in your life. Now, meditation, just to clarify, is not sitting cross-legged saying, um. It's not about emptying yourself. But true biblical meditation is about focusing and filling yourself with the truth of God, with the presence of God. Meditation moves truth from our heads to our hearts. And as we've read before in this series, it's out of our hearts that we speak and act. Philippians 4.8 says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Meditate. Don't just read something, but actually take a month and every day meditate, memorize scripture, recite it to yourself, Pray it to God. Take it in your quiet moments when you're driving, when you're eating. Another example from the book that we're studying is for those who struggle with lusts or self-centeredness, 
Philippians 2, 3-4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Don't just read this verse, but meditate on it. Ask God to help you in your day. God, I don't want to do anything out of selfish ambition. Is this being done out of selfish ambition? God, help me to value others. I, I'm, is this, am I doing this simply because it's out of my own interest? Help me to view others as more than myself. Six things. In conclusion this morning, I just want to ask you honestly, is there sin in your camp? Has there been sin in your family line that needs to be brought to Christ and broken? Again, this is not about blaming or shaming anybody in your family line. That's not the point here. You are accountable for your own sin. Chris Kruk is an Eskimos fan because he chose to. That's his own sin he has to live with. His dad maybe taught him about it, but he made that choice. Your sin is still your sin, and you're accountable for it. But we do need to recognize that there's deep roots, and deep roots that need to be broken and cut off. Can you be a, a chain breaker in your family? God wants you to, and God can empower you to. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. If you're here today and you've never, ever actually had a relationship with Jesus, you've never experienced the freedom that comes from Christ, it's available freely. The sin that has entangled our lives, we actually can experience freedom from. And it's a matter of bringing it to him, inviting him to come in and giving all we have to him. If you'd like to do that, if you're in person, I'd love to pray with you afterwards. If you're online, you can ask for prayer from one of our hosts, Carrie or Ashley, and I'm sure they'd love to speak with you. Church family, I encourage you to, to make time. Make time with your spouse if you're married. Talk with your parents if you're younger. Involve your kids if you have children that are old enough and talk about your own family line. Talk about both the blessings of what's been passed on your family, but also the curses that you want to see broken, the patterns that you want to see stopped. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we close in prayer. In our prayer today, I'm going to read out of Psalm 79, 8 to 9. And after this, Pastor Jade's going to come and conclude. If you're in person and you'd like someone to pray with you today, maybe something is hitting home, maybe you know about something that needs to be broken, you want someone to stand with you, I'd love to do that. For any of our prayer partners, we're just going to be on the side here, and I'm going to join them. We'd love the opportunity to do that. But church, I want to pray this prayer over you. If you'll close your eyes, which again is not for the purpose of somehow that's the only way we can access God. It's because most of us are like me, and we're ADD, and it just helps us focus. This is the prayer I pray for you and for me, for us as a church. Heavenly Father, do not hold against us the sins of past generations. May your mercy come quickly to meet us. For we are in desperate need. Help us, God our Savior, 
for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Amen.